Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. This year, to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the podcast, I'm bringing together some of my favorite artists, historians, and archivists to talk about the work they do with trans history. Because though I would love to take credit for all of trans history, in reality, there are so many people doing incredible work out there, and I'd love to share this platform with them. This month, I'm talking to my friend Abram J. Lewis. AJ is a postdoctoral fellow in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies at Grinnell College in Iowa. As you'll hear in our interview, we share an interest in how magic, spirituality, and the occult intersect with trans communities. He is also the co-founder of the New York City Trans Oral History Project, which works in partnership with the New York Public Library System to document the stories of trans people in and around New York for future generations. We'll be talking about witchcraft, counterculture, oral history, and what possibilities we're left with when we demedicalize and depathologize transness. All right. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, One of the historical characters that you and I are both completely obsessed with and work around is Angela Keys Douglas, the founder of TAO, Transsexual Action Organization, a psychedelic 1970s trans activist group. What can you tell me about Angela and TAO? Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I was actually just like glancing at the, the questions that you sent me and I was like, this is funny because that's probably the most straightforward question that could possibly be asked. Like tell me about Angela Douglas and, and Kyle or TAO. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm already confused about how exactly to answer that question, which might be why we're both kind of obsessed with them. Um, but I think, well, w- one way to answer the question is to sort of like start with like what they're kind of tend to be most known for. So like, a- you know, Angela Douglas was a uh, trans woman um, who was active uh, as, as an activist, mainly in the um, 1970s. She came out as trans in 1969 and kind of fell in with gay liberation, um, mainly via the counterculture, because she was um, also like a rock musician um, and involved in a lot of, you know, countercultural scenes at large, um, and then decided that like gay lib was for her. um, And um, in particular is noted for like in, in 1970, um, she founded sort of one of the first like uh, trans activist groups that were sort of born out of the you know militant ferment of like the gay liberation, women's liberation and black power kind of moment um, called the, tra- originally called the trans, I think the transvestite transsexual action organization that just like, you know, shortened the transsexual action organization or Tau, um, which she started in, in Los Angeles where she'd been living at the time and then relocated to um, Miami Beach, uh, Florida 
Florida in like 1972. Um, and uh, Tao, like from there, like Tao kind of developed into this um, collective of largely, uh, Angela Douglas was white. Um, the collective developed into a largely um, uh, low income uh, Latinx cadre of trans women um, in the uh, Miami Beach area. A lot of uh, particularly folks of um, you know, Cuban descent. Um, and, uh, you know, the Tao is noted for really being kind of one of, I think deservedly so, for being kind of one of the first groups to develop these, like, you know, really kind of progressive trans political platform. Um, you know, again, this is like not surprising, like born entirely out of like knowledge about the conditions of their own living, right? So like, you know, Tao was, you know, like really staunchly critical of police and uh, policing in prisons. Um, they were sort of like, you know, staunchly advocating for decriminalization of sex work. Uh, um, they had, you know, really interesting critiques of institutional psychiatry and the ways that it pathologized not just like trans people and gays, but like, you know, the ways that it was structurally racist and capitalist, et cetera. Um, and uh, so I think Tao, like also, like one of the things I think is like, especially noteworthy about them is that they were one of the groups, you know, there was a, a sort of uh, like national network of trans groups that kind of cropped up in these years. Um, um, and I think like, they, they were especially kind of committed to like feminism um, as like an integral part of trans liberation. Um, and we were definitely, I would regard them as like an early trans feminist group, like as well. Um, uh, I think even, like as I mean, it was a sort of investment that like I, I tend to have admiration for um, because they were really like committed to seeing feminist liberation and trans liberation as intertwined projects, even at a moment that saw some of the ugliest iterations of of like cis feminism um, emerging as the 1970s progressed, especially after like 72, 73, when like cis feminism was getting more and more hostile towards um, uh, trans issues and towards trans women, especially. Um, and, uh, you know, Tao was like really engaged around that and was, um, uh, you know, very critical of like turf ideology um, and retained sort of like, uh, you know, allies and solidarity work with um, uh, feminists who, you know, weren't horrible turps. Um, but uh, yeah, so Tao was like this, like, you know, it, Tao also became a multi-chapter um, organization that had chapters in a couple different countries, including the UK, uh, maybe Australia, I honestly kind of forget out of hand. Um, their main active headquarters was in um, Miami Beach. Um, so they were also kind of reaching towards a kind of like sort of global trans liberation movement at an early time. Um, uh, all of that is though is like is kind of like the tidiest tale that can be told about Angela Douglas and about Tao. Um, uh, pretty much like everyone who's written about her, and you know, and also comments made by folks who were her contemporaries and you know comrades is that like. Angela Douglas was also this really complex figure. Um, she was interested in a lot of other things beyond sort of trans politics as we kind of traditionally understand them today. She brought that to Tao, um, and I think a lot of other members um, brought similar kinds of idiosyncrasies to their work. Uh, so Angela Douglas was really, um, she was an iconoclast. Um, she, uh, I guess I would say like, you know, <laughs> 
she's hard to talk about it. you know I, I say like this is again, i'm already sort of like struggling to narrate that like you know i myself like as someone who works on her i'm in an ongoing process of trying to figure out how to speak and write about her um in the sort of like most neutral possible terms understanding of course that perfect neutrality is impossible um but i, I can say that um uh she was a sort of intractable figure um, in like gay and trans liberation. Um, and one effort to sort of frame her neutrally is to say is that like she was a woman who like throughout her life, I'm saying woman and I'm not even sure if that's the, quite the right characterization, but um, throughout her life um, uh, was constantly making claims about her life and the world around her um, that were extraordinary. Um, you know, claims that I think were difficult for a lot of other humans um, to sort of receive as intelligible. Um, uh, words that get thrown around about her a lot by people who knew her, people who've written about her, was that she was uh, paranoid or delusional. Um, she uh, was prone to quote conspiracy theories. Um, she, she did in fact write very prolifically about, um, um, in her view, the very, very many individuals and organizations who were invested in plagiarizing or stealing her life and work. Um, um, and she also, yeah, she had a lot of um, relationships with extraordinary entities um, and forces. Um, she was a, a lifelong um, uh, occultist and ufologist. Um, she had a number of um, encounters with extraterrestrials um, and with um, other kinds of, um, you know, in, in our landscape, apocryphal entities and forces like ghosts. Uh, she would, um, you know, sometimes receive information from you know, sort of tel tele telepathic modes of communication. Um, and, um, you know, when she brought some of those perspectives to Tao, it ended up kind of developing into a group that was also incorporating a lot of different kinds of um, experiences and insights um, that are not always ratified as being like legit or rational um, uh, within sort of like orthodoxies of political activism. Um, uh, so, you know, Tao, like in particular, um, really took up um, Angela Douglas's um, interest in the occult um, uh, and it prominently used occult techniques um, as strategies for political organizing. Um, I think one of the other members I think deserves shouting out because I'm a little bit obsessed with her also is the group's second president, uh, Colette Goody, who's sometimes called Tish Goody, um, <clears throat> who may have been engaged to be married to Angela Douglas at one point. I'm not sure, but at any rate, they were close. Um, but uh, Goody kind of became, she was a uh, like trans woman of uh, French and Cuban descent um, and kind of became like the group's resident bruja. Um, uh, um, and, and drew very eclectically from a lot of different sort of magical traditions. And I want to mark that magic is a kind of very limited and kind of Western formulation to be using about what they were up to, but I'll use it as a bad placeholder term. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, Goody was like really in, uh, sort of invested in drawing from, you know, traditions like Santeria and Voodoo, from also Western esoteric traditions like Levant Satanism, uh, um, other kinds of like new religious movements um, and sort of under her stewardship, um, you know, alongside some like, you know, more traditional like organizing work that they were involved in, like they like protested Myra Breckenridge when it came out, right? Um, uh, but we're also really interested in doing things like um, uh, using hexes um, to as a strategy for, for trans self-defense. Um, they uh, 
uh, hexed the um, Miami Beach police force um, uh, in response to a spate of uh, sort of arrests and abuse of trans women in the area by local law enforcement. Um, they also use hexing um, to uh, resist the sort of ascendance of turf ideology and, and second wave feminism. Uh, Morgan, uh, the feminist Morgan uh, Robin caught a hex from them after she gave this like really, really trans misogynistic speech um, at a, a conference on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, I think even beyond their sort of like, you know, like, like organizing tactics, um, they were like just like involved in this, like, especially through their like periodicals and stuff, um, you know, left behind a record of just like really profoundly imaginative and creative and sometimes just like awesome and hilarious, like ways of thinking about and approaching trans organizing. Um, their newsletters, if you look at them, are full of this like amazing psychedelic, like, you know, artwork. Um, they, they ran a regular UFO ESP occult feature. Uh, one of the strategies they also took up was to solicit um, alien invasions of Earth on a number of occasions, um, some of which they regarded as partially successful. Um, and they also were really interested in kind of theorizing the relationship between trans women and extraterrestrials. They, they saw extraterrestrials as a kind of natural ally um, uh, to trans folks. Um, yeah, they, they had like these very imaginative and, like I said, sometimes kind of hilarious approaches to to organizing. Uh, most of which don't look like the kinds of traditional reform techniques that many sort of like funded nonprofits use today. Um, I was I was just looking over some of their documents uh, the other day, and it was reminded of like. Um, I think like in the middle of the 70s, there was this like surgery conference um, at, like in Miami Beach. Um, and this was like at the time before uh, sort of uh, gender confirming care was so sort of exhaustively excluded from coverage by like, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, private insurance. That didn't really happen until the 1980s. So it was still sort of up for debate whether or not gender confirming surgeries should be regarded as like strictly experimental or not. Um, and so their technique for um, engaging all these surgeons at this conference was not to do something more predictable, like, you know, stage a protest or like somehow get into the conference to engage the professionals in like civic discourse or whatever. But um, uh, again, like a number of their members were um, sex workers. So their strategy was to simply pick up a whole bunch of the surgeons as Johns um, and then use that interaction um, as a venue for delivering their um, political perspectives um, on trans related surgery. Um, and one of the things they were Reported was like in particular, like they had some members who had access to bottom surgery um, uh, and picked up a bunch of the you know surgeons and um, uh, declined to reveal anything about their trans status until after carnal relations had been consummated and then put to the surgeons that perhaps if a um, you know medical physician wasn't able to tell the difference between a you know surgically constructed or vagina or one that was bequeathed at birth and perhaps the surgeries are not quite so experimental as the doctors are claiming that they are. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, in, in a lot of different ways, like one of the things I would say as a, sort of an organizing principle is like as a group that was like, largely, you know, low income, really under-resourced trans folks that they like by necessity had to pursue a lot of their organizing outside of um, strategies that would have required more research, more resources and like more kind of mainstream political respectability, to be honest. Um, uh, so that, I think in particular, they're kind of like an interesting uh, group that thought very creatively beyond sort of like traditional modes of doing social change work, whether that meant, you know, deploying hexes or, you know, um, other kinds of spirits against their enemies, um, or whether that meant, you know, infiltrating a surgery convention by sleeping with a bunch of the, you know, 
professionals at hand. Um, yeah, they were an, uh, an idiosyncratic group. Um, they, like a lot of groups from the time, they sort of like petered out by the end of the 1970s. Um, Angela uh, Douglas, uh, um, you know, continued writing through the 80s and was less kind of politically engaged. Um, you know, it's worth marking that like, you know, like her writings to the 80s and 90s, she died in 2006. Um, for me in reading, uh, they're less readily intelligible um, to me as a reader, her writings. Um, she started to write even more prolifically about the many conspiracies that various, you know, forces were um, developing against her. And, um, uh, you know, by reports, you know, appearances seems to have like her material conditions, I think deteriorated a lot through the eighties and nineties. And she was living in poverty and degrees of homelessness for a lot of the later parts of her life. Um, and I think made some of her final comments on the record, like in like, you know, internet forums and things like that, um, uh, which for me are very, honestly very difficult to follow, um, uh, which isn't to say that there's nothing there, there. Um, I, I think that, um, yeah, she's someone whose who's, who's truth claims, um, I think, are challenging uh, for a lot of uh, both historians and other activists and colleagues of hers to um, receive. Um, well, she also won the lottery, right? Like yeah. once or was it two times she won the lottery? But she won the lottery and then she like blew it all in a year. She bought a Corvette. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, like detransition, and then she kind of retransition, and then maybe detransition again. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's unclear, and you know, this—that's also one of the comments she makes in kind of her like very end of life, like internet rants. You know, um, is she sort of uh, describes herself as like having returned to living as a man? Um, I think had complicated um, perspectives on her like medical transition. Um, uh, like at one point commented that she transitioned um, mainly an effort to get to get back her lesbian ex-wife who left her for another woman um, and described surgery as having left her as a like as she as she wrote uh, a sort of mutilated sexless man. Um, uh, so she's complicated, including like I almost feel complicated using the pronoun her to like to refer to her. That that's the, overwhelmingly the one that's used. Um, I don't know if it, I I truly don't know if it reflects her understanding of herself um, towards the end of her life. Um, yeah, she's a complicated and kind of intractable historical subject in a lot of um, registers. Uh, There's a lot here I want to unpack. Um, <laughs> but kind of the first the first bit, you know, um, Tao was a, a national and indeed international network. Like here mm -hmm. in the UK, there was a cell of it in um, in Birmingham that was run by a trans guy named Brooklyn and his trans girlfriend, yeah. Layla. And then there was another mm -hmm. one in London run by Stephen Whittle, who's still around, That's um, right, which ends up becoming Press for Change, the organization that gets the huh. Gender Recognition Act in the UK. Uh, it's the activists from Tao London who later in the nineties become Press for Change. So um, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I think the thing that um, I'm most drawn to, and I think you are as well, is what you were talking about around um, Tao's concern with like witchcraft, spirituality, aliens, and what you perhaps call unreason. Um, and you're working on a book right now, if your bio is to be believed, um, about this thread within the early gay liberation movement. Um, and obviously this is my whole vibe and the thing I'm most interested in in the world. Um, so like, 
what does that lens of enchantment and unreason give us in exploring trans and queer histories? I think that's a question that probably has more than one answer. Uh, I mean, I can start with a kind of boring and more humble answer, which is like, I partly see my role as a researcher to simply like be making these traditions more available to trans communities and activists today. And sort of like, I, I'm honestly more interested in what other organizers today think that they can get from these um, resources. But, um, you know, I, I will say that like, you know, part of the way I came into the project, um, you know, I sometimes when I give like elevator pitches about like writing a book on queer madness and magic in the seventies and folks are sort of like, you're filling an entire book with that. And my answer is like, it was actually kind of everywhere. Um, like I, I didn't set out to do a project on this, but kept going into my archives and bumping into all these aliens and, you know, unseen forces and, you know, spirit channeling and also just like a lot of interest in threshold states, like, you know, through, either through drugs or dreams or mysticism or whatever. Um, uh, it was really struck not just by the pervasiveness in the archive, the sort of primary source archive of uh, queer and trans activism, um, but also in how it was nowhere in the literatures about it. You know, like I use the same archives that like every other historian uses to write about this time, right? Um, so I was like really interested in like this sort of like mechanism of exclusion that seemed to be happening. Um, uh, like in the ways of like, th there's simply this way in which like unreason and enchantment was very difficult for people to write about. Um, uh, and I think, you know, one of the, you know, sort of answers that I sort of float in my writing about its exclusion from like historical literature is, is that like, you know, not just within kind of mainstream society, but also in like sort of progressive historiographies, um, you know, magic is not really ratified as a force that can produce social change like in the material human world right as a historian it's really easy for me to write about how like a belief in a deity may have been a source of inspiration um but it's much harder for a historian to say like and then activists levitated the police precinct building and you know in so doing um you know was able to like desist police violence against queers for the rest of that afternoon, right? Um, but that's in contrast to a technique like, you know, the mantra like drugs into bodies, like, you know, like as a historian, I'm not required to simply say like, well, and then the activists believed that they got drugs into bodies and that was an important sort of maybe personally fulfilling, you know, belief practice they were like involved in um, that is like forces of material change like magic is treated much differently in a secular civil society um, than a, an agential force like smashing the doors to the CDC or whatever um, so you know I think one of the things that I wanted to kind of like make available for you know readers or activists or historians or whatever um, was like just like the expansive breadth of both like imaginative and praxis oriented resources that queer and trans communities have drawn from historically that like are especially foreclosed today under our like hyper non-profitized social justice landscape right that like um that like the, the innovations and techniques that like activists were employing in the 70s like honestly wouldn't be possible today in a lot of ways are much more difficult in as much as like it's pretty hard to get a grant from george soros to like go hex a you know abusive police force right um so like you know i think i like wanted to make the point that like 
uh, unreason and enchantment has been really, really prominent in uh, uh, queer and trans and other marginalized um, traditions of resistance. Um, and I wanted to make the point also that we might especially want to pay attention to unreason and enchantment um, in as much as these seem to have been strategies taken up by communities that were specifically excluded from mainstream reform efforts. Um, um, like, you know, like in as much as like social marginality is a condition of being divested of traditional avenues for political participation, then it makes sense that we would see these especially marginalized and often sort of multiply marginalized communities um, turning to registers of agency, like magical agency and turning to registers of thought, like, you know, acid tripping or, you know, ecstatic, you know, mystical experiences. Um, as alternative resources for thought and action. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think in a basic way, it's like, you know, I wanted to make a point about like how, um, you know, in, in fact, whatever you think, whatever one thinks about magic as a sort of register of agency for making social, like material alterations and, you know, structural conditions around us, um, that for many of these groups that like, you know, made some of those, or what are now regarded as some of the most like important early interventions in thinking about queer politics and activism, um, that their investment in thinking beyond the profane worldly plane and thinking beyond dominant orders of reason was like part and parcel of the, of the political imaginary they brought to those and you know one way I try to contextualize that is I work a lot with like um, you know archival materials on groups that folks maybe haven't been exposed to before but try to situate that alongside um, canonical um, thinkers and critics from that time um, who like we're also really interested in these themes of like irrationality and madness uh, madness and, and magic um, but aren't really recognized as being um, invested in those. So like, you know, some like examples that I might throw out might would be like, um, I try to make the claim that sort of women of color feminism, for instance, um, was really drawing from critiques of like enlightenment regimes of secular rationality and or sort of develop a, like these sort of early intersectional political platforms. Like we can think of like, you know, Audre Lorde's um, early work, like especially like her black unicorn, like poems and all the Dahomey witches that are in there. Um, you know, I'm thinking like also her like super famous essay like uses of the erotic where she describes the erotic as, a, as an ancient and sacred resource you know um i've also been working a lot with like Laurence Aldua's um writings um in particular this is like forthcoming in my own writing but like Gloria also do it like she herself commented when she was alive that she felt like spirituality was like the most underengaged element of her work um, from left communities which you know have their own kind of distinct traditions of like secularism um uh and uh, like Gloria Osteldua, for instance, has this, uh, this is the thing that I'm kind of excited to be working on, uh, has this entire book length on like book length unpublished autobiography and um, that she wrote before Borderlands La Frontera, her like most widely read text. And it's not an early draft of Borderlands. Um, the text like, she finished in like 81, 82 is called La Serpiente que se come su cola and the serpent that eats its tail. It's an, it's an Urubus reference. Um, and most of the text is her narrating her sort of like, you know, political development bodily experiences uh, she was a sort of chronically disabled also um of trying to understand her political experiences and bodily experiences mainly through like western esotericism and like black magic um uh so yeah, I've been trying to like uh, like make this argument that like yeah these these offer us um, resources for thinking um, that are especially foreclosed in a nonprofitized order um, today um, and I think like you know it's like um, 
I, I think I also like, yeah, I try, I try to make a sort of broader effort to like call folks to like understand that marginalized communities simply are going to be pursuing other avenues for agency and change, right? Um, uh, that for, you know, for instance, for a collective of like, you know, in the case of Tao, like largely like, you know, poor and homeless, like like trans women of color sex workers. Um, this is actually something that Gloria also do with us in her own words, almost exactly that like magic offered one of the only resources available to them um, to affect their worlds. Um, and yet that's also the kind of one of the most eclipsed strategies um, for, um, um, affecting social change and as much as it draws from an apocryphal um, register of agency, right? So yeah, so I also try to like, you know, make a larger point about like, you know, if you want to actually reckon with the interventions that like, you know, intersectional movements, and especially marginalized communities have made, you're probably going to have to look for things that don't look like political thought or political action in the ways that we usually think of them. Um, that's a partial answer to the question of what we get from unreason and enchantment. I mean, I'm also in a sort of like more meta way, like, you know, just really interested in the um, like sort of like weirdly recurrent kind of perennial affinities that like many, many different queer, to use a, again, a sort of imperfect placeholder word, like queer communities have like, I mean, as you know, Morgan, like literally for millennia have been gesturing at sort of innate or even ontological connections between non-normative gender and sexuality on the one hand and like magic or enchantment on the other hand. Um, and I got kind of interested in like a problem, at least within scholarship, within activism too, to some degree, um, that like, you know, it's basically axiomatic in gender studies and in much of sort of like queer community culture or queer cultures that like gender is a social construct, right? Um, which is to say that like gender has no content that's not produced by social relations, right? And yet we've got all these folks everyone from like, you know, Audre Lorde to like the Madison Society towards like, you know, the sort of millennial long tradition of um, sort of, you know, gender different or, you know, queer, again, anachronistic term individuals like, um, uh, drawing from transness as a sort of vehicle for accessing religiosity um that like really flouts like social constructivism right like just sort of to claim that like like gender nonconformity or queerness somehow has a privileged relation to like the divine or the otherworldly is on some level to claim that like gender and sexuality is not exhausted by human social relations right um and i don't try to make an argument about what i think gender or sexuality really is i'm more interested in like kind of the problem of like what does it mean to say like to like be proceeding with this kind of like secular imperative that we must understand gender and sexuality in terms of its um social constitution um when that actually ends up overwriting the life worlds and imaginaries of a lot of communities and individuals who we probably don't want to summar summarily dismiss as like essentialist, right? Um, so there's also a kind of interest in like trying to hold open like different spaces for thinking about what gender and sexuality are or like what we can allow gender and sexuality to be, you know, especially in academia and as much as like, you know, one inheritance of Foucault, you can cut this if this is boring for your readers or listeners or whatever. Um, but like, you know, like the traditionally in academia, it's like modern sexuality is a secularization narrative, right? It's about the transition of the religious confessional to the, you know, uh, therapeutic confessional um, in, the in the movement from sexuality or sodomy qua sin to homosexuality qua medical diagnosis, right? Um, so I've also been sort of interested in thinking about like, can we narrate other histories of like sexuality under supposed modernity um, that are actually secularisms others, you know, not just secularisms effects um, uh, as the Western world modernizes. Um, 
I think that's probably everything I have to say about that is sort of, this is an open-ended question is simply like, what would it mean to actually hold open the space like that might allow both in in scholarly and activist discourse um, for not simply eclipsing or overwriting, but maybe like simply providing space for like non-secular or magical or like religious ontologies of gender and sexuality when like traditionally the mandate is that we can understand these formations only in terms of secular human worldly social orders to kind of switch tracks a little bit um i want to talk about another project of yours uh one that you helped found which is the new york city trans oral history project um which does exactly what it says on the tin it collects oral histories from people uh trans people in and around new york city how did this come about um, you know, it, it, it came about in a kind of aleatory way. Um, this is the oral history work I've been involved in is not interested in quirky questions about madness and magic in the same way. Um, and it's, a, I think when we started, it was something that we all thought was important. Those of us who are academics didn't want it to be part of our like research agendas, but, uh, um, you know, it actually came out of conversations with activists in New York City originally. Um, I was like sort of comparing notes with this person who worked at um, SRLP about like what we knew about trans history and she from talking to her clients and me from digging through boxes and um she'd commented she was like you know like like they just like she's like my clients just have the most amazing stories like I wish that there was some kind of some entity that had the capacity to exhaust like actually recapturing and preserving them which was like kind of this light bulb moment for me where I was like how come there's never been an oral history initiative focusing on New York like trans New Yorkers right we're arguably like a pretty large and vibrant heterogeneous and also arguably pretty historically significant community you know um um, in like lgbtq politics nationally and internationally um but i think uh especially because it was born out of conversations with activists um, and one of the things that like they put to us that i i was like especially taken by was the idea that like you know if done properly an oral history project does not have to be simply about producing a, you know, historical record for posterity's sake, that it can actually be really kind of like presentist, like political resource or like, you know, like actress I was talking to were sort of like, they're like trans communities are like experts at their own survival. Like there's a lot like as attorneys or like nonprofit workers that we have to learn from like, not just historical memory, but like social expertise, like um, at like surviving and, um, uh, so I think that the, the project ended up de- developing into a mostly volunteer-driven um, initiative. Uh, we're hosted by the New York Public Library. Um, that was like, you know, I think kind of born out of this like dual investment to not just like, you know, produce an art oral history archive of trans folks in the city, which I think just needed to happen one way or the other anyway. I don't know why I would have done it before, um, but also to be like really attendant to the ways in which like oral history could be a kind of resource for uh, community organizing, uh, you know, and anti-oppression work broadly. And, and one of the things that we've really tried to do around that is to like um, be as intentional as we can in thinking about like, the entire history of like trans folks being excluded from like the accounts that are produced about us and like what like practically needs to be changed about something like an oral history initiative in order to actually promote trans community direction. Um, So we've taken this like very participatory kind of like volunteer driven model wherein uh, most of our interviewers are, um, we don't have credentialed historians doing interviews, most of our interviewers are just like trans folks in the city who like somehow connect with the project and get kind of like a crash course training and like some basic techniques and here's some equipment you can use or whatever. 
Um, and then I've just been simply sort of encouraged, like listen to and record the stories of other trans folks in their lives. Um, so it's uh, been a project that a lot, a lot of folks have had a hand in contributing to. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been cool to kind of like be like thinking through how to sort of develop a project in which like trans folks of a lot of different you know life ways and paths like are involved in the project design at, at pretty much every level. Um, and I've definitely been involved not just as like narrators, but also as interviewers um, uh, for trans history. Um, yeah, so it's, it's developed. It's funny because like one of the actually one of the things we did was like, I think like I basically read the revolution will, will not be funded and was sort of like, well, how could you use this maybe as like a model for like, you know, for doing oral history work. Um, and you know, one of the, it's like, we have no like 501c3 status. We have no fiscal sponsor. Like we don't have a university affiliation, which would all be the kinds of things that would get us like, you know, much more structural support for doing a project, um, but also give us much less flexibility in terms of how we wanted to design that project, right? It's like one of the gatekeeping mechanisms and research, right? Like human subjects research is like, it's not cool as far as like a university is concerned to just allow any old person to be doing, you know, to be a, a researcher as an interviewer is, right? Um, you know, meaning that like, you need to have like a credential pedigree in order to even be eligible to do research within university contexts, um, which has been a pretty convenient way of kind of like foreclosing, like, you know, participation by all kinds of communities who don't have access to higher education, for instance, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I think that one of the lessons from like, you know, critiques of the nonprofit industrial complex that was, you know, sort of surprisingly, helpful was that like um you know because it runs on a lot of like volunteer community participation we haven't we've again have much more flexibility in terms of project design um and uh you know have been able to function on like basically like no no staffing or budget for um you know our existence we've been pretty dormant under covid like a lot of entities have or whatever um but yeah now that the project's got you know some like more than 200 interviews um there's interviews in English and Spanish. Um, I think also like the fact that, um, you know, the project builds on existing community ties has really promoted like, you know, a more heterogeneous archive. Like a lot of our um, interviews are perhaps the majority are with like low-income trans folks and trans folks of color. Um, yeah, so, it, you know, I guess like, you know, it really in whole has been an effort to try to like think about like, how would you have to like change oral history practice in order to make it like kind of meaningfully community directed and also make it meaningfully accountable to like present day trends, um, uh, advocacy and organizing needs. Um, and I fell into it very accidentally because I'm a historian, which meant that I went into my line of work mainly to avoid human beings, um, uh, but then got kind of into oral history. <laughs> um. What do oral histories, which can be idiosyncratic, contradictory, even actively deceptive at times, um, give us that other kinds of history do not, particularly within trans history? Like what's, mm -hmm. what's the value of oral history for us? That's a good question. Um, and again, I think there's probably like a few answers to it. I mean, there's a basic answer, which is that like, you know, like, like trans history is really poorly and imperfectly captured by most uh, methods of print documentation. This is something that trans communities share to some extent with like, you know, other marginalized communities um, that like, you know, 
in time, like trans folks have been more, most likely to enter the historical record when we go to the doctor, or when we get arrested, or you know, get murdered, or maybe some kind of like unusual circumstance happens and we get mainstream news coverage because of like popular like fetishistic fascination with trans people, right? So you've got these print documents that are really, really partial and are you know largely you know quote like top down materials that are kind of pathologizing and like fucked up, and they also tell us almost nothing about trans like community life. You know, um, they tell us about trans individual interactions with the institution of medicine, but not so much about trans interactions with other trans people. Um, so there's like a whole breadth of like trans experience and trans pasts that like for which oral testimony is really the only vehicle for preserving it. Um, but I mean, I think the more, some of the more, my view, what's more interesting about oral histories than what I think you're actually gesturing at, which is that like, you know, traditionally um, oral source material has been regarded as like distinctly unreliable. Um, uh, uh, you know, for the basic fact that it relies on a distinctly unreliable mechanism, which is human memory, right? Um, uh, you know, when, when I teach on it, this is something I really try to impress upon my, my students and not just for inter not just for people who are interviewed, but like as humans, we're constantly like retweaking and refurbishing and like revising our memories of ourselves to make them comport with and be coherent with our present understandings of who we are and what our life experience has been. Um, so like, I'm not going to disagree with like conservative historians on that front. I'm like, yeah, human memory is totally fucked up. It goes all over the place. You can't trust it at all. Um, but like in contrast to sort of like more traditional historians, like queer and trans historians have tended to regard the very unreliability of sort of oral testimony as like one of its assets. Um, there's this... Uh, um, uh, this dude, Alessandro Portelli, who is, you know, uh, one of the, he was a labor historian mainly in the, in the 70s, who was like really like influential and sort of like pumping oral history as this like, you know, new, new way of relating to history in general, where he makes the point that like, uh, that like print records can tell you like the facts about the past and like scare quotes, um, but like oral testimony can give you unique insights into the significance behind those facts. Um, he makes this actually, which is actually tied to its unreliability. He makes this great point that like, um, you know, if you interview five different people and they all disagree on like when this dude died, that like, you're not getting facts very well from like five different testimonies that disagree with each other. But like the fact that all these people altered their memories means there must've been something going on there, right? That there must've been some reason to revise memories, right? There was some social significance to this person's death um, that obviously impacted different people in different ways, but that significance was nonetheless there. And that's the thing you can kind of get at through um, uh, oral testimony. Um, well, yeah, so that'd be like my kind of second point is like, like Portelli's perspective that like untruths can like offer as much insight as like truths and it's not necessarily useful to be trying to parse truths from untruths. Um, but uh, you know, in the case of like trans folks, um, this is something that I think I owe like really to watching my like colleagues like doing oral history work is like, the thing about like trans people is like, a lot of us in the project actually have gotten, um, a number of us have gotten like really into the resonances between like oral history interviewing and psychoanalytic practice. Um, uh, the, the space of the oral history interview, which is often it's like very intimate. It's a, it's a confessional space, right? Just like therapy. Um, and there's actually a lot of techniques that, that some oral historians use that are quite resonant also with the sort of critiques of psych of analysis, right? That like, you know, in contrast, like, you know, like in contrast to like journalistic interviewing or sociological interviewing, which has, you know, very rigid structured questions and journalistic interviewing, which is often like sort of looking for the like spicy soundbite, you know, at the expense of everything else. Um, but like oral history really tries to like talk therapy, create a kind of like open support space 
um, to sort of like allow a narrator in the space of the interview to be actually as messy as possible and as kind of free form as possible and to like, you know, um, uh, be like, you know, revisit, uh, to try to find the support to like revisit memories or experiences from a different angle or to sort of do affect different kinds of juxtapositions in, um, in a person's life. Um, and, you know, like talk therapy that tries to get at new insights into the unconscious through like free association, like so too does oral history, like often really try to encourage messiness and like not tidy ways of thinking about like one's life and not ways that are trying to impel towards coherence. Um, um, and so in the case of like trans folks, I think this is something that's like been really interesting to me because like, you know, in a lot of ways as a population, like trans people are like a hyper narrativized community, right? You know, like in basic ways, like, you know, like anyone who ever tried to like access medical transition recently in the United States probably had to sit down with some social worker or therapist or whatever and provide an accounting of their gender and narrative form, right? Um, uh, you know, so too with the sort of like public sort of like popular explosion of like trans visibility, we get bombarded with more and more transition narratives. And, and even as those like narratives sort of like proliferate, like as we move into a kind of like trans tipping, further into a trans tipping point conjuncture, it's also almost like this sort of allowable scripts for like what a trans life looks like become really rigidified and sort of calcified you know um so like i've gotten like you know also really interesting uh, interested in oral history specifically with like trans folks as an opportunity um to i guess just like jump the script in a lot of different ways and in ways that can be unexpected and that can't sometimes are unplanned for when an interview um uh begins um uh and doesn't try to like clean up you know, the sort of messiness and, you know, uh, doesn't try to clean up the, the sort of entirety of our existence that doesn't slot into like narratives of transition or trans experience that like are intelligible to like, you know, lar larger audiences, right? Um, so like I, I've been kind of interested both in like the idea of like the oral history practice as a way of kind of like, uh, like kind of denarrativizing like trans experience to some extent. Um, and also through its sort of like interest in supporting people through meandering and like, you know, co contradicting themselves in, um, you know, interviews and things, which is cool like, when that happens um, um, in interviews that like um, as an archiving practice, um, that if like dominant archives, like state archives, as folks like Derrida write about, are these like hyper taxonomized, hyper rational, hyper logical and, and very, very ordered, right, um, sort of productions of modernity. Um, I'm really interested in some of the ways in which like oral history can like produce a sort of trans archive that's like structured more like the unconscious, you know, that like often follows no discernible organization or like, you know, logical order at all. Um, uh, so maybe it isn't, maybe it is sort of attached to my interest and sort of unreason in that respect also that like, um, I, I really kind of like the really chaotic and messy um, kinds of accounts um, that oral testimony can generate and the ways that it can kind of open up like really divergent ways of being trans that even in this moment where we think we have all these like more and more and more discourses about different ways of being trans and more and more identity categories are getting proliferated all the time that like there's also a lot of ways in which like there's whole domains of trans experience that have been sort of disqualified as wrong you know um uh, as like trans gets kind of assimilated and mainstreamed um uh and i think like oral history can be a venue for sort of opening up um that sort of like expansive experience that doesn't fit into like the scripts you would get in a new york times op-ed or you know even in whatever the like next hot memoir is
one of the things you touched on there was around unreliable narrators. And so I feel like that's a good segue back into our dear friend, Angela Douglas, um, who was a notoriously unreliable narrator, especially as she became older. Um, you know, one of the aspects about her that I'm always really struck by is how difficult she was. Like mm -hmm. she burned every bridge she ever came across. She made, you know, an incendiary statement in the feminist press that added to the creation of Janice Raymond's The Transsexual Empire. Um, mm -hmm. She later, due to homelessness- Her, her letter, by the way, to the yeah. one that ended up in Transsexual Empire is hilarious. Like, I mean, have you read yeah. the quotation that shows up in the book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was making claims about trans superiority over um, Jenny's, so the sort of pejorative term that trans women were using for cis women at the time. Uh, <laughs> it's open for debate whether or not she was being satirical or earnest, but yeah, no, anyway, you're right. I ended up getting weaponized in um, uh, uh, Transsexual Empire. <laughs> and I, I feel like even she changed her mind many times over the years about whether or not mm -hmm. she was being satirical or serious. Um, I read some quotes by her where she's like, no, I was absolutely being serious. There's nothing tongue in cheek about it. Transsexuals are superior. Uh, and then there's other moments where it seems like, you know, maybe this is all a big joke. Um, and like, anyway, yeah. So like later, you know, she goes through this period of instability and homelessness. She partially and or fully detransitions. Who knows? We don't really know. Um, and basically no one seems to have a kind word about her. <laughs> um, a lot of kind of trans and queer history work comes from a place of searching for heroes and icons. Mm -hmm. um, but Angela isn't exactly heroic. So what do we get out of reckoning with difficult queers, difficult trans people in history? I also think there's probably a plurality of answers to that question. I mean, there's a basic one, which is that like, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, we both of course totally understand the sort of political reasons behind constructing a usable past of like trans heroes, right? Um, heroism is also like a pretty rough bar to have to live up to in the present, you know? And, and I, I think that there's also costs that come with that, right? Even in, in the cast of characters that are sort of the legendary heroes that most people are familiar with today, like Sylvia Rivera or Marsha P. Johnson, um, they had a lot more similarities with people like Angela Douglas um, than tends to get represented in the like, you know, blockbuster films or, you know, even New York Times, you know, like reporting on them. And I think folks like who've been really working on them, you know, Tourmaline's work comes to mind in particular is actually like asking us to reckon with their more dis difficult, um, uh, um, their more difficult characteristics. Uh, but, you know, I think like, you know, I would also say that Angela Douglas, and you know, she also, she has, you know, incurs this like narrative of decline um, from folks who write about her, which is also not unlike many other trans activists of her time. Reed Erickson, who we've, um, you know, commented on um, is another person who has a sort of like biography that gets narrated in very similar ways. Um, um, they burned a lot of bridges. They were both like, you know, routinely assessed as sort of like delusional, paranoid and difficult. And I, I do on the one hand, try to keep like in my mind that like, these are folks who were working under like really hostile political conditions, you know, including as the seventies progressed and like cis gay activism is getting more mainstream and starts to hate trans issues more and more. And, you know, second wave feminism, of course, is being more and more hostile towards trans issues and trans women in particular. Um, that like, first, like, the things that made them difficult was like precisely because they rejected those developments like in political orders, you know, like I, uh, um, 
you know, I get, I feel like, like, like Tao is a good example, for instance, right? That like, um, uh, you know, Angela Douglas um, did have quite a lot to say about folks who are out to get her um, or fuck her over. But like, um, you know, in the case of like, you know, I've mentioned how they'd like hex to like, you know, uh, as a um, police violence resistance strategy. Um, but like, these are folks who like, like in the later seventies as I was like reading more about like, uh, reading more of some of their writings like it's like they got Tao got tapped by the gay activist alliance in the late 1970s um the sort of like now kind of notorious for being the like expressly single issue like gay organizing group that came out of the gay liberation front um it's like the GAA wanted to file a class action suit against the Miami Beach police for violence against um homosexuals in their view and they wanted to tap all these trans members as plaintiffs because trans women, of course, have had the most profound experiences of like, you know, state violence like, in that context and often now. Um, uh, but they wouldn't, like GAA refused to name the trans women as trans women. They wanted them to appear as homosexual male plaintiffs, right? So it's like actually totally, completely fucked up, right? They're sort of like, you know, appropriating like these experiences of like, you know, you know, horrible state violence, you know, which are distinct to like, you know, trans, you know, experience in politics um, and simply trying to repurpose them in order to make an argument on behalf of respectable like cis gay men, right? So like, you know, with the fact that like Angela Douglas and Tao burn their bridges with gay activists and with a lot of like feminist activists is not so surprising to me, right? They actually were kind of getting fucked over by a lot of them. Um, but I, so I think that like, you know, like one of the things that we kind of get from like difficult queers is that like, you know, they became intractable figures because of their sort of like unwillingness to sort of abide by like codes of civil conduct and to abide by sort of dominant orders of common sense, you know, um, and those were forces that alienated them from human allies, you know, um, but they also were investments that were really integral, like to their ability to produce very different kinds of uh, political interventions and platforms. Um, you know, the things like I was, I think I said about like Reed Erickson is that like his willingness to fund like gender identity research was totally part and parcel of his willingness to fund, you know, techniques for inducing altered states of consciousness or like interspecies animal communication, right? That like, um, you know, it's like a common activist mantra from that time was like be realistic, demand the impossible that like we might also consider like that sort of adaptation of like be realistic, imagine the impossible. I mean, it was often those kinds of imaginings that like ended up burning bridges. Um, uh, but I think this is the last thing I'll say about it is that like, um, uh, that sometimes like folks who uh, on sort of first glance appear to have like gradually withdrawn from social or political engagement might've been up to developing other modes of sociality or coalition work or relationship building that look, that are less obvious on um, a first glance. So I, I've tried to be sort of like open to the idea that like, you know, what might it mean to tell a story in which Reed Erickson, for instance, doesn't just like alienate, uh, what was the homophile group, One Incorporated, right? Um, he had this horrible falling out with One, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, in which we tell a story in which not in just which he has progressive isolation as he burns his bridges with humans or like Angela Douglas as she keeps casting aspersions and sometimes other trans activists and feminists and like whatever, um, that like, you know, what might it mean to sort of say that like, well, yeah, like as their sort of relationships with like human allies declined, like perhaps they were also pursuing other modes of sociality and relationality that are sort of less immediately perceptible. Like, you know, what do you mean to say that like, you know, Tao's coalition work with like, you know, lesbian feminist liberation kind of tanked as the 70s progressed, but their coalition work with extraterrestrials may have deepened and expanded in really interesting ways. Um, 
so I think like difficult queers and difficult trans folks like can also present us with like a lot of other models of like life worlds and doing relationality um, that can be also be imaginative resources for today. So, I mean, we talked a lot about um, Tao and um, kind of the seventies organizing moment. I know one of your other projects uh, that you're working on is around trans, like quote unquote trans organizing before the nineties transgender boom of like Kate Borenstein, Leslie Feinberg, transsexual menace, transgender nation, blah, 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 blah. Like all that stuff that happened in the nineties, which I feel like also just as a point for listeners, I feel like it's so funny. We talk about the transgender tipping point as being 2014 when in reality, <laughs> the like big defining moment of trans people coming into media consciousness was really the nineties. Um, or even the seventies. I mean, well, that, that hit the popular arena in a lot of big ways too, but no, I think you're fine. Yeah. 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 I mean, we have a tendency to come around a lot in the media. In fact, there's like these yeah. moments, even going into the 19th century, where you have like these periodic explosions of trans people into media and courts and all kinds of things. Um, so anyway, we've been around. But <laughs> anyway, one of your projects is about like pre-90s trans organizing and obviously Tao is part of that story. Um, COG or Change Our Genders, the San Francisco-based organization that I did an episode on is part of that story. STAR is probably the most well-known part of that story. Mm -hmm. Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, which everybody talks about now, um, even though I feel like nobody actually knows anything about them. Um, mm. I mean, that's all, if I may inter I'm sorry, I'm interjecting briefly, but like, that's also one of the interesting things about groups like STAR is that like the sort of like archive of STAR and what I guess I'm, I'm using this in a slightly traditional way in terms of like print materials that they left behind that were actually authored by people. I believe the last surviving member of STAR regrettably passed away about two years ago. Um, that like the archive of STAR is really fucking tight. You know, the memory boom around Star is like fucking huge, right? So there's like been this sort of like will to sort of historicization that actually really, as you, exactly as you're saying, was sort of like really, really hyper connecting these groups or sort of investing in these groups that we um, have very little, like, very little access to, access to knowledge about. And in some ways, I think that's cool because it's allowed a lot of people to kind of run free with their imaginations about what they think Star is. But I totally interrupted your question. You were going to go on about. Um, no, no, no. Stuff. I mean, yeah. I think. I think that happens, I mean, let's diverge for a moment. I think that happens precisely because there is so little information about STAR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think um, it allows, just like the Stonewall Rebellion or whatever, I feel like because we know so little for absolute sure about what happened, it allows people to project their current politics onto the past. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. one of the and things I've great. often... I was gonna say, so too with like in, like events like the Conference Cafeteria riots. Oh like yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally, they gone, yeah, yeah. And like, and really specifically with people like Sylvia Rivera, for example, who, you know, you see people praise day in and day out, when in reality, if they met Sylvia Rivera, most of those people would be really freaked out. Like it, mm -hmm. she was in many ways exactly like Angela Douglas, particularly, mm -hmm. Um, in the 80s and 90s, when she went through periods of homelessness, she had burned bridges with everybody. She was not an easy person to get along with. She is like many um, contemporary, homeless, sex working, uh, mostly people of color, like trans people. 
um, she's really fucking difficult to get along with. Um, and sometimes like cruel and, you know, explosive and all this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I do think, I think it's really deeply related to the fact that we know actually very little about these people. And so we've been able to like craft them in our own image. Whereas I feel like with Angela Douglas, um, even though a lot of people don't know about her, one of the weird things about Tao is that they left a huge print archive behind. Yeah, like they, they had lot, two yeah. different magazines, uh, Moonshadow and Mirage. Um, you know, she also wrote, um, it was two autobiographies, I think. Uh, although mm -hmm. I don't know if the second one exists maybe, but she definitely wrote at least yeah. one because I've seen that now. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's a real, I mean, if you check it out, it's a real trip to read, right? Because she's like constantly interweaving her sort of discussion of like her sort of gender identity evolution and then her like political interventions with like alien encounters and like ectoplasmic, you know, figures that appear in her room and, you know, maybe her, her ex-wife became Joan Jett or something. And then like later Tom Cruise like plagiarizes some element of her work for Top Gun. I don't know. So there's like the ways in which she's interweaving things is like really wild. But yeah, she, she wrote that yeah. and also a, a later one, which was mainly about her um, plagiarizers uh, for later. Um, yeah. But I interrupted you again. But yeah, but yeah, they wrote a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And I feel like maybe that's part of the reason why they don't get historicized in the same way. Um, they've made themselves apparent as too difficult. <laughs> well, it's like they've painted yeah. themselves into a corner. Like we know a lot about them and it's like, oh, we know too much about them. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I don't, as much as I think uh, we have a lot of fun in community chatting about these trans women in the 70s who, you know, were very into ufos i feel like uh, there's a respectability politics to today's activism where we're like oh mm -hmm. maybe maybe we don't want to put that on all of our posters um because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what'll what'll the cis people think whereas like sylvia yeah. rivera's one really famous speech is really easy to translate to public terms because it's the same mm -hmm. politics that's being um used contemporarily yeah. with like black lives matter and um most of contemporary trans politics but um Anyway, the, the question I was trying to get to um, was actually just, is there, are there any like tantalizing pieces outside of Tau, outside of Star, outside of COG um, that you're working with in this kind of like pre nineties uh, trans organizing work? Uh, you know, that's, it's an embryonic project and I honestly might not have very tantalizing answers for you at this like stage, especially since I've gotten distracted doing other oral history stuff. Um, um, I mean, one of the, I'm or this is already present in my like first book project, but like, I mean, one of the groups I would tap that I think doesn't, is not quite as exposed would be like the Philadelphia group, uh, Radical Queens, um, which is like another like really trans feminist collective. Uh, um they were also kind of interested in like think like strategies like Druidism and Satanism as sort of resources for like, you know, trans liberation. Um, uh, um, you know, like, I mean, part one, honestly, like one of my kind of stumbling blocks around this is that like when you get out of the 70s um like you largely have to look outside of formal organizations for a lot of what like trans folks were involved in um you know i will say that like some of the kind of like you know 
like zygote like interest threads that I'm following right now. Um, you know, include stuff like 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 trans women's sort of like mutual aid efforts um, during the like peak years of the AIDS epidemic, which is something that occurred entirely outside of formal organizational auspices. Um, this is you know not really. It's not whatever. I, I mean, this this project is not about like like sort of craziest like queer groups in the ways that I've done with my first book. So like as sort of that it has lots of a focus on that. But like uh, um, you know, one of the things I've also gotten really interested in this is this is actually an argument that was made like some time ago by like David Valentine um, is like how central the ascendance of like the HIV AIDS like service provider industrial complex was to the sort of emergence of like you know, quote, transgender politics in the 1990s, um, that like in a lot of ways, like, uh, again, like the argument's kind of been made, but I, I'm sort of like, there's actually like a, it's much bigger than I think, like he was equipped to make with his kind of delimited ethnographic research at the time, um, but in like really intense ways, like trans as a category really was a production, was this kind of biopolitical production of like um, managing the sort of like, you know, supposed like threat to the general populace that was posed by this like newly intelligible demographic, which was like trans women, mostly trans women sex workers, right? Um, so I've been trying to sort of like trace like a sort of more expansive kind of like backstory to like how, what was once this very kind of like undifferentiated kind of, you know, uh, nebulous set of like, you know, different kinds of genders and sexualities being in community with each other or whatever um, into the sort of like, uh, uh, like sort of stabilization of trans um, as the umbrella to accommodate all of those things, to, like to accommodate and also contain all of those things, right? Um, as a manageable population. So that's something I've been interested in. And this is not really part of like the like pre nineties thing, but I also have a kind of like side project that I've been making very incremental sort of progress towards which is like um kind of extending some of the stuff I was working on that I've also gotten really interested in like um occultism specifically in early 90s trans feminism uh so like people like uh like Rachel Pollack of course like her writing for Doom Patrol making the first fucking as far as we know the first trans superhero who was a lesbian feminist sex worker like in the year 1991 like what the fuck and like no one writes about her uh writes about Doom Patrol or like uh, you know folks like Genesis Purage you know and Psychic TV in the 1990s and other kind of cultish figures like uh um wait have we talked about Chris Corda before Do you know who she is uh, so she was like um, this like trans woman and electronic musician uh, who uh, founded, I think in like 92, a new religious movement um, called the Church of Euthanasia, which was, a, I think the word for it is like an anti-natalist project that promoted human extinction. Um, so like the sort of pillar sacraments. Is this, of the, is this the vehement project, the voluntary human extinction project, or is that different? I think that's different. Church of Euthanasia okay. was like, I think it was Chris Carter's like kind of self-contained like effort. And they were mainly active in the early nineties. And it wasn't a trans group, but it was led by a you know, trans, um, you know, charismatic leader. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so they like promoted, you know, sacramental pillars like cannibalism and abortion and suicide. Um, uh, and she made a lot of like awesome, like electronic music tracks, like Save the Planet, Kill Yourself, I think was one of her songs. Uh, but uh, um, they, uh, yeah, there's like all, all of these sort of like charismatic figures and folks interested in occultism that also pop up in the early 90s that have gotten kind of sidelined. Um, and that's not really attached to a pre-90s project, but it's something that I'm really interested in. Um, 
Anyway, you can you cut know? that question if that's too boring. I don't know. <laughs> no, that was great. It was really interesting. Um, uh, just for your interest, do you know about the Maitreyum of Kaibele? You were telling me about them, and that's all, all I know about. Oh, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're a group that popped up in the 90s, mm. I think, that um, they're trying to restart the Galli of ancient mm. Rome. Uh, and they, they have like, they actually got like religious status for their temple and they have this big house and they house trans um, refugee claimants in it. And like, they do all kinds of shit. They're still around, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and like one of them's in Australia, but anyway, it's in, um, I feel like they're in Massachusetts or Connecticut or somewhere Northeast-ish. Um, anyway, you should look into them. They're really great. And they have all these like essays on their old website. I'll send you it. Um, they have essays on like Gnostic transsexuality and like all this stuff looking into the galley and how to like restart that cult basically anyway i'm completely obsessed with them and i desperately want to interview them or like go film with them or something anyway i'll send you i'll send you proper links they have two websites they have a new one which is like new and whatever but then they have an old one that has all their cool essays on it so i'll send you the old one um anyway (laughs) so when do we get to read these books when when do I get to read about uh, magic and madness in gay liberation organizing? When do I get to read about it? Oh, so, you know, sometime. Um, I mean, the pro- probably the more like you know, maybe disappointing answers. Like, you know, I, I work in academia, and uh, as you know, folks who are involved in that know, and this is a fact but probably potentially boring for other people is that like it's a kind of fucked up vocation to be getting into right now so i uh, like there's a really boring answer to when we get to read the books which is like i'm not sure because right now like honestly writing a, a book length historical monograph is really not part of my job description um uh and i feel a little bit as like academia gets like more and more brutal and uh sort like you know, it's like been involved in the same kind of work speed ups that like every other sector of capitalism has been involved in that like part of me is kind of like I feel a little bit weird honestly about finishing this book that actually like was mainly done as a professional pursuit I am deeply personally invested in it also right but it's like you know traditionally like first books are supposed to serve like you know the tenure process um and like for me at this point it sort of feels like writing the book is a little bit like showing up for an unpaid internship even though I really care about it um so like I want to get it out there um I also feel a little bit like weird about contributing to like a sort of work speed up for um people in academic careers um like uh, but, uh, I, you know, I will say that, like, um, my main sort of interest in finishing it is actually just to, like, make the material that I dug out of boxes available to people. I think that even oftentimes the things that I have to say about things that I look at is much less interesting than the objects themselves. Um, so, like, my main investment in finishing it is really just to make the material, even aside from my own commentary, like, available to readers. Um, and by that token, like, certainly, like, whenever folks like get in touch with me and are like, do you have more materials on this or whatever? I'm always happy to share writing that I haven't published yet or show archival materials that I haven't published yet. Um, so uh, hopefully it'll come out in like the next like couple of years or whatever, but it depends on how my job shakes out. <laughs> well, um, I'm very much looking forward to reading it when it does come out. I feel like I am exactly the intended audience for this um, book project. Um, 
Anyway, I do feel like uh, I still at some point owe you a tarot reading. Um, I only did your astrology chart last time, but uh, at some point I'll give you a tarot reading. Um, but anyway, I, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to uh, be interviewed for One from the Vaults. Yeah, thank you for having me, Morgan. <laughs> okay. And I, I actually have something before you stop it. I actually realized there's something I want to say. I got something to say. Um, when you were asking about difficult <laughs> queers, I actually missed the thing that I actually that I wanted to sort of comment on. Um, okay. Uh, um, is, is that okay if I like, yeah. like share, share something that I wanted to do? So like you know in in the like like on the matter of like difficult or intractable queers, you know, I, I think that there is kind of like a basic way in which there is also a usable past to be had in recognizing that like queer and trans activists, you know, then were like fucked up and messy and weird and complicated and oftentimes insufferable, just like many trans communities today are, you know, um, you know, and like the kinds of things that like, you know, like that alienated folks like um, Angela Douglas and like, or like Reed Erickson of the Erickson Educational Foundation from, uh, you know, other kinds of like, you know, political allies, you know, weren't disconnected from like, you know, political standards of like, you know, again, like sort of like proper conduct and sort of proper ways of thinking and proper ways of engaging. And like one of the moments like Angela Douglas, for instance, was like really, really smart. And I remember like reading this amusing uh, sort of uh, feud that she got into with another trans activist, I think in like female impersonator news, um, was based out of like Belmarmouth, New Jersey, where like uh, this other activist accused like Angela Douglas of being like a paranoid schizophrenic. She's not, not the first or last person to do that. And like Douglas, like letter to editor, like immediately fired back was like, yeah, I know what that is. Um, and also like, you know, as leftists, we reject entirely hegemonic psychiatric constructs like schizophren paranoid schizophrenia, right? You know, like, you know, and don't you remember, like, let's try to remember that you are also mentally ill as far as like psychiatry is concerned, right? So like she had an understanding of the fact that she was like the ways that she was making extraordinary claims were produced as extraordinary and apocryphal by the epistemic regimes that we live under and that she had to be attached to those things as part of her political critique, even as it made her difficult to deal with with other people you know um at times um and i think there was like in particular like um you know one thing that's been i, I think like really satisfying for me in working on this project is, you know, although like my colleagues in sort of career academia are often simply kind of weirded out by the like quirky stuff that I study, um, that like a lot of folks that like I'm in community with tend to get like really excited about it. Like, you know, um, there, there are these kind of like, you know, you know, enduring like affinities with like the otherworldly um, and, and with the irrational and the unfathomable. Um, and there's this moment um, at the end of Angela Douglas's um, autobiography, and I have to give credit where it's due. It was a passage that I know Noticed, but Susan Stryker also has pulled it and commentated on it. And she, I wish I had her words with me because she, um, she commented on it in a way that put it much more eloquently than I, I can. Um, but so towards the end of um, like her first autobiography, uh, Triple Jeopardy, um, she's responding to the charge that like, quote, people say that she's strange. Um, um, and the way that she wrote um, in the, this passage here, um, she sort of responds to her own question, am I strange? And she, she writes like, I, I'm not any stranger than the cosmos with its countless, countless stars and bizarre black holes and quasars and time warps and distances we cannot really imagine. I am no stranger than a volcano, a hurricane, the myriad of life forms on this planet, the process we know as life and death or anything else. But I am different to some extent from most human beings. And that has nearly killed me and left me um, destitute on many occasions, despite um, intelligence talent and ability and that's part of how she closes out the autobiography 
choreography. Um, and Susan, you know, I think, again, in much better terms than I could put it in, was sort of like, you know, there's something really resonant here that like on the one hand, like, Angela Douglas as a difficult person was like that difficulty was not inextricable from the like incredibly violent ravages that like capitalism and transphobia and you know that affected upon her life, which is something that trans communities continue to live under. But she also had this sort of like endearing affinity for like the strangeness and the beauty of like the inhuman world and this like kind of attachment to the pulse of the cosmos, like even beyond like worldly terrestrial, you know, planes, um, which is also something that like you know, we can think about the sort of like longstanding like trans affinity for things like witchcraft or like, you know, speculative fiction even. Um, I think that like this kind of affinity has also like been like, these kinds of affinities for like the otherworldly, for the, the world beyond the human, like the world beyond the sort of profane secular plane um, have also been like really kind of sustaining forces for a lot of trans communities then and now, especially for communities that are so bereft of other sort of sources of support and recognition. Um, you know, and I think like, you know, especially for like communities that are so like often told that we are also strange and illogical and unfathomable and like literally that we don't exist, right? Um, that like, I think there's a lot that can be like, you know, like, you know, life enhancing and uh, it, yeah, and, and sustaining for, for communities who, 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 who don't have other, other sources of like, of allegiance or, or recognition uh, that like, I think the sort of like affinity she felt for like the pulse of the inhuman cosmos, right, is something that has like obtained in a lot of trans community contexts. And when we sanitize these like figures by making them into like trans heroes and sort of like conventional activist senses, um, you know, we lose a lot of their fantastic, like their like fascination with like the fantastical and the, you know, the extraordinary and, you know, and, and, and like the numinous, right? Um, which like, we're really animating life forces for like these folks. Um, uh, and so I think like for Angela Douglas, like leaning into her own strangeness is one of the ways in which like, she, for me, is like a really inspiring figure. Um, that's one of the things I see as valuable about um, the sort of work that she did. That was amazing. I will pop that in to the interview in the right spot. Um, that was really good. Is there anything else um, you wanted to touch on? I should make sure there weren't any like really like titillating moments like in like Tao's organizing that I like hit didn't hit on because like what they did was more interesting than what I think about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was just rereading um, right before we got on the call. I was rereading, as I frequently do, Zagria's uh, Tao timeline. Yeah, Zagria's like the best person in trans history. She doesn't always get it right, but she's so comprehensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I also think that yeah. she like she like staged like exactly the right way to try to narrate like Angela. She, when she was writing about like Angela Douglas, she's like, well, here's the account that comes from historians, and here's the account that like Angela Douglas produced about her own life. You know, yeah. uh, but they're, they're totally different, of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think. Uh, I mean, they just have like a lot of really. I mean, I can send you like some images if you have them. I think I, I know. Like, I guess sent some of them to you that like Colette Goody is like she was like a formidable like you know physical presence at least in the sort of like images we have of her. Ships like a femme I would like really not want to fuck with. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, it was just like their commentary was often so like I, I pulled this like piece where like they were um, uh, 
sort of revisiting the groups like platform on um, extraterrestrials and UFOs. Um, they, they put out a, a sort of directive to all the chapters to like ensure that like space people were welcomed as allies um, by town members. Um, uh, but not uh, transvestites. This... Transvestites not welcome, but so that... aliens very welcome. <laughs> You might have better, like, rem- you might have better recall than I do about how Tao's position on transvestites may have evolved or not. I know that they, I mean, they cut it from the group, the, the organization title. I think they retained, at least in some chapters, like transvestite units or whatever they were calling them units, like affinity cells, you know. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, anyway, so like, it's part of their sort of like um, organization wide directives. Like, I remember like uh, looking at like one of the their uh, periodicals where, uh, um, oh, I think someone else wrote this about Douglas. Um, she, so she made a radio appearance um, in which she commented that, um, you know, certain, she's uh, quote, um, that certain oppressed minority groups would welcome extraterrestrials as liberators and would probably ally with them, um, contrary to suggestions that the people of the Earth um, should be uniting to fight invaders from outer space. Um, and so Angela Douglas um, said, like, wrote in like, one of the periodicals, she's like, um, you know, I expect all of us to protect and assist all space beings whom we have determined are friendly. And further, I ask that all heads of UFO groups contact me and work with me to work out a, na- a nationwide UFO friends network. Uh, we must all let the space people know we are willing to work with them and they're most welcome to live with us. <laughs> uh, That's incredible. Please <laughs> in commentary. <laughs> Oh my God. I always, I always love all the UFO stuff in Tao. It's so, it's so amazing. The world they were imagining is really exciting in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's kind of like, you know, when you ask like sort of what do we have to like, you know, glean from like these like intractable or recalcitrant figures, it's like, you know, so much of my own thinking about like how to engage with these like has not been either my own original like insight or even come from other like historians or academics or whatever. But like, I've been really fascinated by like um, part of this like will to memory boom around uh, like trans history, like how many like artists have gotten really interested in these figures. Like, I don't know if you've seen Craig Calderwood's portrait of I think it was in one of the, I, I reproduced in one of the articles I wrote. Um, like she did this like amazing portrait of um, Angela Douglas and her extraterrestrial friend, you know, um, uh, you know, folks like Wusang and like Chris Vargas have also like really been interested in the kind of relationship between like, you know, the legendary or the mythical or the whatever and like the historical and like in contrast to kind of boring stodgy historians, like, um, like a lot of these cultural, like, you know, workers and, and artists have like really centered precisely these intractable materials, right? Um, so I don't know if it's like within my authority or if I'd have anything interesting to say about what it is that makes like these figures, like, a, a site of sort of fixation or interest for like cultural workers but like part of me kind of feels like the proof is kind of already in the pudding that like folks who are who are actually trying to think differently about how we can imagine trans life and trans politics are like already lo- starting to look to these figures precisely look for the elements of them that have been kind of sidelined within more traditional like historical accounts with, um, about them um I know that some of it has also like led to a sort of resurgence in some like, you know, more contemporary efforts at using kind of magical techniques for uh, resisting, um, you know, state violence and other forces of oppression. Um, Yeah, we are really kind of um, going through a very similar cultural moment to the 70s right now, where we have these 
big social movements that have happened. And we've also seen a return, particularly amongst millennials and like queers mm -hmm. and trans people to things like tarot and astrology and magic. Um, you know, it's be very hard to um, swing a cat in a trans or queer community space and not come across somebody who knows how to read tarot or wants to know yeah. what your astrology sign is, right? So it's not like, these figures like Angela Douglas or even Sylvia Rivera, who also was interested in the occult in lots of ways and had um, mm -hmm. had a, a shrine to the um, Arisha of Santeria in her home. Um, like to protect, to pro was that the one like to protect the girls like with- Yeah, she uh, would go yeah, pray to, Starhouse, she yeah. would go pray to it at Star House before yeah, people yeah. would go out for the evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, you know, she's Puerto Rican. So it was like very much part of her culture. Um, but like these figures and those specific pursuits really aren't that far from what's happening today, you know? Uh -huh. um, even though it doesn't, you know, um, take up that sort of non-profitized um, mm. or even influencer industrial complex kind of, uh -huh. you know, trans politics that gets airtime, you know? But it's very much a part of the culture today for mm. a lot of us, not yeah. just me. <laughs> I mean, I think what's also interesting about it is like, yeah, I, I agree that like in part, like this is like, I see it's not entirely, but partly an effect of sort of like nonprofit fatigue in like the really impoverished kind of like political imaginary that it gives us. Um, but uh, uh, like, I mean, one thing I think has been sort of interesting is I feel like more people have been like coming out around these interests, like especially in recent years, right? Like, when I first started working on my own project, like I would often have like, people including like academics and sometimes activists um uh like sort of like approach me and like like come out as witches to me basically like folks who are like this is really not part of my work or it's like not part of my activism or like whatever but like I'm so glad that you're working on this because it's actually been so important to like how I've developed a, a politics right um but there's been this way in which i think that like the sort of like you know the magical the mystical the sort of irrational whatever has been really relegated to the sidelines and is you know is sort of like this like um, like thing that a lot of people have taken on as like into like sort of private or sort of supposedly personal pursuits, even as they've been really integral to how like a lot of folks have approached activist life. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, again, I think like Gloria and Julia comments on it like the best that like you know the left has got like real problems like in its kind of like you know like really secular investments, and again that like oftentimes like you know, connections to the witchy tends to get associated with kind of like essentialist, like second wave feminism and like the divine feminine and like things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, or sort of like in sort of like more traditional, like kind of new left ways, like, you know, religiosity is often posed. I mean, I mean, think Marx, right? He's like the like original dude on this, right? The religion is, is exactly the opposite of political engagement. It's a mystification of political orders that like this becomes the opiate of the masses, right? Um, so I think there's ways that like both historically and now that sort of like spiritual or sort of non-secular or mystical practices are often regarded as actually sort of like contravening um, like social and political engagement. Um, and so folks, I think have been much more sort of like circumspect um, in being public about their investment in these kinds of, like, these kinds of work, but it's been really cool to see um, sort of more and more folks um, like be ex explicit in public about those. Like someone like Adrian Marie Brown, for instance, I think has done like such cool writing on, you know, um, 
uh, like an emergent strategy and stuff that is like totally going back to these like very kind of post-human-y like ways of um, thinking about both racial and like gender and sexual justice. And um, yeah, it's been cool to see like activists kind of come out as witches more and more. <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting because I remember um, like a little over 10 years ago, I guess, there was this whole boom among trans women, particularly like white American trans women of, um, of atheism and being part of like movement atheism. And mm. it was like, it got to a point where I just found it really, uh, I mean, people are entitled to believe whatever they want, but I got, <laughs> I got really annoyed because people get up in my face about it sometimes in a really proselytizing way. And uh -huh. it's like, babe, you've picked the wrong girl. Um, uh, yeah. But like that was so big for a minute. There was even like trans atheist podcasts and things. Like it was, it was a big yeah, deal. That, yeah. And then, and then something happened and like suddenly everybody was a witch. And also um, I think part of it was that all of the leaders of movement atheism basically started coming out as huge transphobes like Richard Dawkins and et cetera, et cetera. They've all over the past few years become like obsessive transphobes. Um, and I feel like there, there's something interesting there around how um, I think a lot of white American trans women had been burned by evangelical Christianity of the 90s and 2000s with its rabid anti-gay crusade and they had run for safety into um, atheism, atheism, movement atheism. Yeah. And then like they became, you know, zealots about it. But then a lot of them ended up getting burned when they found out that the leaders of that were just as bigoted as many of the um, evangelicals that they were running from. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure there's still like loads of uh, trans atheists kicking about like movement atheists kicking about mm -hmm. but um, yeah it's been interesting to see that shift over the past 10 years where it was like it was so big for a minute and it was like everybody was talking about it and now suddenly everybody's like um, a gay witch doing poppers and reading tarot uh, with each okay. other you know um, so. it's kind of like an object lesson in that thing that we should know which is that like secularism including in it's like atheist register is not more politically enlightened than religion <laughs> you know? like, yeah. and in fact is often really invested in a lot of tacit like imperialist and racist you know sort of like presuppositions about how society should be run you know um but it's like uh, another manifestation of this thread that we find in trans communities of like um a constant <clears throat> uh engaging with the idea of spirituality mm -hmm. um because you've got like uh, trans people as we've already talked about a whole bunch um join cults trans people found their own new religious movements like we join all different types of religion i mean one of the really big things is like many trans people um whether it's to become an atheist or to join a different religion, we often move from one religious sphere to another is really big in a lot of trans people's self-narratives. There's some people obviously who like stay, like, you know, there's loads of trans rabbis running around and um, trans pastors and things, but there's, uh, I think in a lot of the trans narratives that I've looked at, I think 
you know, as people are also exploring what it means to have gender, what it means to be a person, and often being burned by the community that they come from for it, um, there is a looking outward um, to what are other uh, modes of understanding both the seen and unseen world, you know? Um, and obviously sometimes in a particular period that translated into like movement atheism being the, the next big thing, but at mm -hmm. other times has been like Angela Douglas, um, you know, basically naming her organization after Taoism uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, then, up and they they do explicitly ratify that that's like where they got the, the idea from. I mean, who knows about whatever there might be competing perspectives, but they're like, yes, we took we took our name from Taoism. <laughs> Continue, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, anyway, I just I just find it interesting. It's like an ongoing um, uh, both research and like a creative question of mine around mm -hmm. how trans people understand ourselves because I think. Um, one of the things that I've written about and I think about a lot is if we depathologize transness, so we say transness is not a mental health issue that psychiatrists have purview over, and we demedicalize it and we say, okay, we don't really have evidence to say that this is like the long lost sibling of intersex conditions, mm -hmm. right? What are we left with? And right, to yeah, me, yeah, yeah. The only explanation we are left with is the spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, because we've ruled out mind, we've ruled out body, where all we're left with is spiritual. Um, and you know, I'm not I'm not making any claim that like definitively transness is a spiritual condition, although I might write that sometime in something. Um, but like I think I made that comment at some point. Who? I think Anani made that comment at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I once walked through the East Village from Sarah Shulman's apartment uh, and saw a poster for Anani's solo album and then looked across the street and she was right there trying to hail a cab <laughs> desperately and looking like very flustered. <laughs> anyway. A uh, little New York moment, I'll probably cut that. But um, yeah, you know, like I'm not making any claim that like mm -hmm. transness is a spiritual condition. I'm just saying like, it's interesting to think as a community, as we rule out the idea that this is a quote unquote mental illness. And as we rule, at least by the current available evidence, we don't have any evidence to suggest really that this is like a physiological issue. Uh -huh. Then we're really we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner in terms of like how we explain yeah. um, why it is some of us feel such a strong need to mm -hmm. live as a gender other than that which we were assigned at birth, right? Like I think mm -hmm. the purely social constructivist take that like gender is totally a social construct, I think ultimately trans people kind of pull at the little hanging thread of that because it's like, if it's purely a social construct, why are there so many of us who feel so strongly that mm -hmm. we have to 
go against the social grain. Like mm -hmm. anyway, so yeah, which is not not of... something that we have very many answers for, and you know, other yeah, other other bodies of thought. Yeah, and but as you, a writer, you, that's what's interesting. Go for it. Oh, I mean, I was just gonna say, you know, you exactly like sort of like preempted like sort of what I, what I was thinking about when you're like speaking about like, you know, like like transness and this, this sort of like enduring kind of affinity for it oftentimes like, you know, sort of peripheralized like spiritual or religious practices that like, um, this is again, like something that I think like, uh, like Rachel Pollock's writing in the 1990s about um, transness is like so fascinating where like she describes like she, she does basically describe transness as like an ecstatic religious experience, right? And she has this like idea of like trans sexuality, you know, and I think has this like essay called like abandoned, what is, what is it called? It was like, uh, oh yeah, abandonment to the body's desire um, in the rites of passage um, periodical from the early nineties where like, you know, she kind of puts forth this thing that's like, you know, she's like, there's nothing rational about being trans right which is like part of what like sort of like uh, you know both sort of like social constructivist and kind of medical like sort of discourses do right the sort of like um even as it gets sort of like depathologized as a sort of acceptable kind of social diversity within sort of like contemporary medicine that like you know the formation of sort of like gender dysphoria or whatever is an effort to kind of scientize or like rationalize these like bodily and phenomenological experiences um and to rationalize these like practices of body modification for instance um and like i think like you know rachel pollock you know i think is one of the books who comments uh, sort of like most interestingly on like you know just being like there's nothing rational about it you know like this is you know actually about a surrender to the passions um not about anything that we can sort of like really kind of think about like in, in kind of uh medical scientific terms or something and i think she's like one of the folks that kind of like most prominently kind of looks to like like you know the space of like the religious or the spiritual or the sacred as like yeah, exactly as you were describing that like, if like the available discourses are like medicalizing or like, you know, hegemonic or whatever, um, that like the space of like religiosity like offers like both a different way of conceptualizing what transness is and also a different way of inhabiting a body, right? It's a different kind of mm -hmm. like phenomenological relationship to trans to sort of like bodily difference than we get from like kind of scientific knowledges about it. Well, it's also yeah. like kind of also it makes me think about how um, the psychological and medical discourses are also incredibly Western ways of understanding gender variance, right? Mm -hmm. And um, as we think about decolonizing what it means to be trans and decolonizing um, our own identities as a result. Like, again, you look at other cultures and where you have um, gender, what we would call gender variants in a lot of cultures, whether it's Hijra or um, Bisu or um, uh, many, 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 many different types. Um, generally, it is a spiritual explanation that you're left with mm -hmm. at the end of the day and specifically religious functions, right? Um, and I think people really grappled with that in the 90s, not just Rachel Pollack, but even Leslie Feinberg and transgender right. history yeah. really grapples with it. Um, and I think <laughs> it turned in the 90s, went to some unfortunate places of people overstepping as Westerners what they could claim from mm -hmm. other cultures. Yeah. 
But I think and I, now, I think like like yeah. those discussions in the '90s were, was part of the what what sort of like took that off the table for a lot of people in terms of being mm. a kind of like legitimate way of conceptualizing what transness was was you know because of folks kind of stumbling into you know weird appropriative kind of like you know fascinations with like non-Western like you know forms of gender and sexuality. But that doesn't mean that there's not something there there. Not the West, yeah, exactly. You know? Like, yeah. like <laughs> there is. I just feel like there's work to be done around very careful work mm-hmm. um, which probably doesn't need to be led by white people to be done around decolonizing our conceptions of what it means to be trans and like truly reckoning with a cross-cultural understanding of gender variance mm-hmm. um, without being like appropriative or kind of overstepping our bounds but obviously that that's some pretty big work but um I feel like there are people working on that right now. And I'm, I'm very curious to see where that takes us as a community. Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, this has been really spectacular. Uh, I'm really excited also about this divergence we've just gone on. Um, I'm gonna see how I can fit that into everything. Um, are there any final, final burning thoughts? I don't want to take up your entire day, although I adore speaking to you about this. Mm. I don't think so. Mainly I'm racking my memory because again, it's like, I think the sort of like materials I look at is more interesting than things that I have to say about them. And I want to make sure I haven't like missed anything amazing in my archival documents that I would want to like share. Uh, but I, I can't think of anything out of hand though. It can, it can go in the book that I need you to deliver to me. <laughs> Please write. Pay me for that goddamn book. I'll write the goddamn book. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm thinking, like, you know, and the book's been solicited by Duke. Like, they want to publish it. Um, I'm just like, Mm -hmm. I need this time. Someone needs to give me, like, you know, a sabbatical or something. Like, tenure track professors would get to finish it. Um, But uh, yeah, Duke is very interested in it i just don't have the like like capacity like right now to finish it but you know i have been thinking you know as i get sort of progressively disillusioned with academia like so many of us do that i I may just like punt out the rest of the elements of the book in different like iterations i'm like whatever like i don't care about tenure like you know I might end up just like publishing the rest of the content so like, you know, online or in, you know, journal article forms or things like that mm-hmm. and sort of give up the like monograph format for it, which I don't know that it really needs. Um, uh, well, I would love to read it as a monograph, but you do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to stop the recording now because I feel like... Right. Riding high, leaving trails of smoke